Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the largest private investment in Quebec history. This facility will be able to produce batteries for a million electric vehicles a year. We're talking about $30 billion of investment, minimum 16,000 jobs. Sweden's North Volt bets big on Montreal's South Shore, choosing to build a multi-billion dollar EV battery plant. But what will the payout be for Ottawa and Quebec's own investment? We'll speak with the minister responsible for the Economic Development Agency of Canada for the regions of Quebec. Also... Canada will have to wear this forever. Forever. Did the Prime Minister fail to protect the Ukrainian President while he was in Ottawa? We'll speak to our political observers about the opposition charge and examine the fallout from the Speaker's resignation. And crunching the latest numbers as Manitobans approach Election Day in the province. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We begin tonight just outside Montreal, where the Prime Minister and the Quebec Premier shared a stage today, announcing a multi-billion dollar investment in an EV battery plant spearheaded by Swedish manufacturing company Northvolt. I'm proud and happy to have been able to attract a company like Northvolt. And there were two reasons mainly why we were successful. First, because we have clean energy, and second, because we have minerals. So I'm so proud, honestly. Northvolt specializes in lithium-ion technology for electric vehicles and touts this investment as the largest ever from a private company made into Quebec. As for Ottawa and the Quebec government, they say the billions they are putting into this project will create thousands of jobs and could generate over a billion dollars for the provincial economy. Well, with more, we're now joined by Soraya Martinez-Ferrada. She is Minister Responsible for the Economic Development Agency of Canada for the regions of Quebec, as well as the Tourism Minister. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us this evening. Well, thank you for the invitation. So the Prime Minister, uh, he says, at full capacity, this gigafactory uh, would contribute upwards of $1.6 billion to the economy. But, you know, uh, Ottawa is uh, contributing $1.3 billion to the project. Is that enough of a return on the money? Well, you know, I mean, what we have to agree on is that, first of all, this is a great announcement. This is the biggest investment that we've seen in the private sector in the region of Quebec for decades. But the main focus is that Canada will be the leader in the next green economy and the green technology. And not only this investment is very important, yes, but it's an investment in fighting climate change. At the end of this, we'll have produced a million batteries, a million cars, electric cars, which, you know, everybody's looking forward to. Uh, and that's why I think it's a great announcement. Is there a gamble in this, though, for Ottawa? Because, you know, uh, yes, the Prime Minister and the Premier are touting potential gains. They're talking about the number of batteries bi- being built, the contributions it will make to a green economy. But these are not guaranteed gains. In fact, we're talking about an industry that's still uh, in its infancy. Is there a gamble here? Well, what's the important thing to remember is that this is uh, money that will be uh, given to 
only when the first battery is going to be built. So the guarantee is that there's no money, public funding, that will be going to the company before they actually produce a battery. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this will create at least 3,000 direct jobs and thousands of jobs all across the country. And the other things that we have to remember is that today, the announcement that we made, it's a direct investment to fighting climate change. And we have to remember that because we need to be there in the next economy, which will be a green economy, and this will put, will put Canada in the, one of the best positions in the world. Okay, so I, I'm wondering then, uh, and, I, and I understand what you're saying here, but what is the bar, uh, what's the judgment bar here that would make this a success? Are you talking about job numbers, economic activity, a reputation for Canada? How do you set the bar for success? Well, you know what? Everything you just said. You need to be competitive. You need to be in the next economy. You need to create the jobs. You need to create and produce those batteries and making sure that this investment will have an impact in all communities across the country. And that's what, what this is going to do. And we need to be competitive in the world to make sure that we have, we'll be the leaders in the world when it comes to electric batteries. And that's what we're doing today. Okay. Now, the announcement is just one of many investments into this country's auto industry that your government has announced. Can you talk to us about how this fits you? You talk about the green economy, but talk about all these investments now, because this, for example, is the second one in Quebec. We saw earlier ones in Ontario. How does this fit into the economic strategy that your government is hoping uh, to create for this country? Well, the economic strategy is making sure that, on one hand, we're fighting climate change, and we're contributing to the uh, decrease of, 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 of climate and making sure that we're fighting it. And the second thing is making sure that the economy, the green economy, we're present and we're creating those jobs for Canadians in the next generation. Because that's the next generation of workers, making sure that they will have jobs everywhere in the country, and that's what we're doing. And being a part of that um, country that will lead the way in terms of uh, the batteries that those cars will need to, to, to have. So a very big goal, obviously, but you know, as uh, you are aware, there's also a bit of a pushback because some uh, area residents are already expressing concern about what this gigafactory will, will mean for their homes, worried about the noise, worried about the congestion. Yeah. What do you say to those local area residents who may benefit from this factory but are right now concerned about the impact this will have on their home? Well, I, I really do get those concerns. I've, you know, in my life, I've been a city councillor before being a minister now, and I do understand how do we have to make sure that these projects are done in a social cohesion, in a social acceptance by the communities, and making sure that they not only contribute to the economy, but they respect the environment in terms of how do we do this. And that's the next, and we'll have time to do that. And we'll have to, time to work with communities. And it's something that I'm very, very uh, interested in and making sure that you know communities, especially in Quebec and all across the country, uh, it's done in a way that they feel respected, they feel included, and this is for them. This is for their community. Minister Martinez Ferrara, really appreciate the time this evening. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Well, staying in Montreal, the Prime Minister was also asked about Ukraine during his EV announcement today, specifically how Kyiv has responded to the apology Justin Trudeau made in the House of Commons yesterday, apologizing on behalf of Parliament for the attendance and applause given to a Ukrainian veteran who fought for the Nazis and who was invited to the Commons for a historic speech given by the Ukrainian President. Take a listen to how the Prime Minister answered the question. 
Obviously, uh, since uh, this terrible incident happened on Friday, uh, we have been <clears throat> in close con uh, connection uh, with uh, our Ukrainian uh, friends and counterparts. Uh, we've uh, expressed, obviously, uh, the extraordinary regret uh, that all of Canada shares uh, that, this, uh, that this would have happened, uh, and reassured them that we continue uh, to stand incredibly strong with Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Uh, we've uh, invested close to $9.5 billion now in military, humanitarian, financial aid for Ukraine, and uh, we have reassured them that we will continue to be there unequivocally with everything it takes for as long as it takes. So there you have it, a non-answer to the question posed. And to talk about this, we're now joined by our political observers. Susan Smith is principal with Blue Sky Strategy Group. Tim Powers is chairman of SUMA Strategies. And Anne McGrath is the national director for the NDP. Hello to the three of you. Michael. Hello. Okay, so let's begin with the prime minister. Really not shedding any light whatsoever as to whether or not Kiev or Zelensky has responded to the apology that was given yesterday. Uh, is that not an answer a bad sign, Anne? Anne, Susan. <laughs> no, I think we're, uh, the speaker resigned on Tuesday. It took him till Tuesday to resign. The prime minister apologized the next day. Today is Thursday. Last Friday, the prime minister announced 650 million more dollars for Ukraine. And as he just said in that clip, it's been a total of $9 billion in Ukraine. I think Canada's relationship with Ukraine will survive the test of time. Uh, we've always been there from a support perspective. If they've had, uh, you know, a couple texts between one another, I think is irrelevant to that between last Friday and now Mr. Zelensky has a war to fight. So I think that's the important thing is Canada's support continues to be there. Tim, what do you make of it? Uh, Mr. Zelensky does have a war to fight, absolutely. But in, in the, the, emb the embarrassment that was the incident in Ottawa, which people have answered for, um, is one that the Russians are weaponizing and others are weaponizing. I, I think the question was a fair one posed by the reporter, because if the prime minister were to say or Mr. Zelensky would say, look, I've talked to the Canadian prime minister and uh, we accept the apology, we understand that would help put this to rest when it's not when it's left silent it creates the opportunity for further embarrassment but again we won't know for a while how significant the damage of the embarrassment is but it, the story is going to continue until there's a bit more clarity as to how the ukrainians are reacting and how the prime minister president of uh, ukraine is reacting okay uh, do you think the apology and was enough the the resignation of broda you know here you have the the ukrainian president coming to canada not only for the first time but at great risk to him because mm -hmm. here, he, here he is fighting a war. No one's talking about that beautiful speech and powerful speech he gave last Friday. People are talking about the guest that was invited. Uh, has Canada done enough? Well, first of all, let me say that the, the speaker uh, took too long to resign. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the fact that you don't necessarily know all. You know, in some ways, it almost looks like he halted at that point in the speech. Um, uh, so I don't know. You know. I believe that the responsibility does lie with the speaker. I believe he should have resigned much more qu quickly than he did. And then I think that, that, that there is fair criticism that the prime minister's apology was also quite late, perhaps because of the, when the speaker uh, resigned, but certainly it was it was very late. And and so I think you can say that uh, you can say that something is not someone's fault. Like I wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. say it's somebody's fault, uh, like the prime minister's fault. 
but they do bear responsibility. He does bear responsibility. And that's where that's the important thing for me, is that there are real serious consequences to what happened there. Tim mentioned uh, the consequences for, uh, for Ukrainians who are dealing with a, a Russian aggress aggressor, but there's also the, the damage to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. So that, that, those are the consequences that I think need to be dealt with. So I would like to move on from the apology and on to what is going to be done to repair the damage that's been done. Mm -hmm. Tim, you were agreeing a lot to what Anne was yeah, saying. Yeah, I was just going to say, look, I, I know, yes, both apologies came. To me, the timing still is a bit of an issue. I think, you know, the whole mechanics of should you wait for the speaker to go or not go are largely irrelevant. Yes, the prime minister did apologize on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. He could have done that on Saturday. That allowed this story to grow. It's more a bit of a political pattern in some ways of the challenges this government creates for itself. Um, but time will tell. The apologies are now done. Let's see where this goes. Okay, Susan. The speaker invited the wrong guest, made a terrible mistake, an awful mistake, an upsetting mistake for people. But it was Anthony Rota and Anthony Rota alone, and not out of maliciousness. It was a mistake. And the speaker, I agree with Anne, took too long to resign. It was up to the speaker to make it critically and crystal clear that it was he and he alone that had invited that guest to the House of Commons. We all know, and uh, you know, we've seen parliamentary protocol and other people interviewed over the last few days about this. The, the Speaker of the House in French is Monsieur le Président. He is the head of the House of Commons. So the Speaker had to do his thing. And I think the Prime Minister, I think it was the right order of operations, but the, Prime, but the Speaker took too long to do it. As for a long-term fallout, like I said, Canada's support of Ukraine is unquestioned. Whether or not Russia is weaponizing this, it's a Russian propaganda machine. So that's a 24-7 machine. So if they've got something new, they'll invent something new the next day if they don't have something. I mean, that's the nature of a propaganda machine. It's a very, um, it was a hurtful scenario, certainly for Jewish communities, Ukrainians, people who have suffered through history and you know felt this very, very personally. But I do think we have to remember who initiated it. And then the Prime Minister has spoken to it, and he's apologized on behalf of parliamentarians well, let me for there, it. Because, you know, I was speaking to Andrew Scheer earlier this week, and, of course, former Speaker himself. And he said, yes, the Speaker has a lot of leeway in most times, but this was a very specific time where there, there was a head of state in the House of Commons, and in that scenario, it's actually really not up to the Speaker. At th that point, you're talking about security services, and that, and that, well, but that, but that goes to the Conservative argument that the Prime Minister bears responsibility in this as well, because they argue he did not do enough to protect a head of state who was coming to the House of Commons. Well, I don't think anybody thought a 97-year-old man was going to do something. I think the Parliamentary Security Service does the vetting of people that come in, and it's from a safety and security perspective. If they want to change the rules and take the vetting and make the vetting political from now on in, that means the leader of the opposition, that means Pierre Polyev's lists have to be vetted before anything happens. I mean, there's there's follow that. Maybe we need to look at how we do it in the House of Commons, but the way the system was set up is, and it hasn't been changed yet, is from a security and safety perspective. And clearly the House of Commons security from a security and safety perspective felt that everybody that was there was physically safe and had no reason to question the Speaker of the House of Commons' choice of guests. Okay, Yes and no. The, the challenge here was this is a, a state visit of one of the most protected people in the world. And with the VIP list of protected people in the world, there are other levels of security. The question needs to be asked quite uh, dramatically as to how there wasn't a secondary level of vetting. 
2014, we had an attack on Parliament Hill. People died. Security was supposed to improve. I agree with Susan that a 98-year-old man is not a physical security threat, but one would assume there would have been a greater depth of vetting that was done given Mr. Zelensky was there. The second final point I'd make is, do you think that would have happened if Joe Biden were here, that the Secret Service and the way they do vetting and the Canadian government when a U.S. president comes would have done that? I find that hard to believe. So there are fair questions there to be asked about the level of diligence that clearly wasn't at play. Uh, I think that, you know, if, if we're going to talk like that, the, the thing is, conservative MPs met with um, uh, a member yeah. of the, uh, of the right. ultra-right fascist... Yeah, they uh, shouldn't have, but she wasn't have, in that parliament. And That's then, not and the then point, And then had photos taken w with her, so would they, you know, would that meeting have been vetted out, right? So, I mean, I think that there's a, there's a lot of complexity here, for sure. There are, as I said before, there are consequences, and there are things that can be done, and those things should be done. But I don't believe that this uh, entire incident, I think it needs to be dealt with, but it doesn't need to be turned into a partisan circus, which I'm worried is, is what we're heading into right now with things that are going on at the committee level and so forth. And this is not a Hollywood movie. This is actually the Parliament of Canada. A bad thing happened. A shocking thing happened with consequences. Apologies have been made. Responsibility has been taken. But now with that responsibility comes action and the ability to actually repair the damage and make sure it never happens again. Okay, I have to do a quick round robin here because I do want to ask one more question and I don't want to be partisan about this or, or risk making this a partisan uh, debate at this point, but... It happens. It, it happens. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we talk about the damage done to Zelensky and the Ukrainian war effort, but what about the damage that this has done to Justin Trudeau? Will there be a lasting impact on the judgment of him? Susan. I think those who choose to use it will choose a collection of whatever they want to choose uh, against the prime minister. Uh, that's the way politics works. Everybody, every party lines up whatever they believe the faults of the other leaders are, and they list them as often and as frequently and as at, at length as they can. So I think this one will be probably added to the list. Whether it's his fault or not, it is added to the list, as Susan alludes to. It doesn't help him right now that this is happening a week after uh, he's made some serious and important allegations about what India may or may not have done in Canada. And just from a political perspective, it doesn't help him internally or externally because, again, it is piling on as a list of challenges that he has been the head of uh, government for. And it was looking like he was having a decent week last week after what looked like a fairly rocky summer, rocky caucus retreat, and then going into the, the session a, a fairly decent week. And somehow I think they did manage to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. And sorry, out of time. But I always appreciate the conversation, Susan, Tim, and thank you for this. Thank you. Well, let's take a look at some other stories making headlines today. The Governor-General, Mary Simon, spoke at a youth event to honor close to 5,000 residential school survivors. Simon thanking what she described as the engaged and committed youth of Canada. A country where we can be proud of our identities. A country where we promise to never repeat the mistakes of the past. This will be your legacy. The event is one in a series of activities to mark the third annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which takes place Saturday. Meanwhile, Conservatives are pushing to find out how Yaroslav Hunka was invited to attend Ukrainian President Zelensky's address to Parliament. The world is wondering. 
How did this happen? And in the words of my speaker, Pierre Polyev, Canada will have to wear this forever, forever. That is Conservative MP Stephanie Cousy asking the House of Commons Government Operations and Estimates Committee to probe the issue. Her motion asked the committee to summon proposed witnesses from the RCMP, CSIS, the Parliamentary Protective Service, and the Sergeant-at-Arms for the House of Commons. The committee has adjourned the motion, though, and agreed to write to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee to study the incident as it falls under their mandate. Yes. Uh, The Americans have been uh, with us uh, in um, speaking to uh, the Indian government about how important it is uh, that they uh, be involved in following up on the credible allegations. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today just outside Montreal responding to questions about whether the U.S. will raise the murder of a Sikh community leader in British Columbia in its conversations with India. The U.S. Secretary of State Antti Blinken met with his Indian counterpart today. The Indian Foreign Minister saying at an event on Tuesday that his government told Canada it was open to investigating any relevant allegations about the killing while insisting that Delhi had no role in it. Ten days ago, the Prime Minister announced Canada had intelligence that possibly links Indian government agents to the murder of Hardeep Singh Najjar in June. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith says her government is working with Ottawa, but she is also ready to use Alberta's Sovereignty Act if the federal government imposes a net zero electricity grid on her province by 2035. Smith saying net zero in 12 years is not realistic, would be costly, and could lead to blackouts in the middle of winter. We're preparing a Sovereignty Act motion, and I'm hoping we don't have to use it. That's why we're at the table having these negotiations. But we are going to defend our constitutional jurisdiction to make sure that we develop our, our, our oil and gas industry at our own pace and that we develop our electricity system so that it achieves the goal of reliability and affordability. And in Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe says he will recall the Legislative Assembly on October 10 to invoke the notwithstanding clause and protect his government's pronoun policy. It requires parental consent when students under the age of 16 would like to use a different name or pronoun at school, but a court injunction today halted its use. As Manitoba's election day draws nearer, the political parties are gearing up for one last push and a final weekend to try and convince Manitobans they are worthy of their vote. Mary Agnes Welsh is principal with Probe Research. She joins us now. Mary Agnes, thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure. Now, it's been said that the election is Wab Canoe and the NDPs to lose. But, you know, when one looks at the numbers right now, the spread does not appear to be that large. So how are things looking right now with five days left in this campaign? Yeah, I think that the spread in Winnipeg, which is kind of the battleground kind of area, especially suburban Winnipeg, um, it, the spread is actually fairly big. You know, it's in kind of in the double digits. Um, the problem, though, is, is the NDPs kind of... Uh, sort of um, their, their vote isn't very efficient. It's really in the downtown, kind of in the north end. They really need to win those those classic suburban ridings. Uh, and those are pretty still pretty closely 
closely fought races. Okay, closely fought, as you say, and you know too that we know that the Manitoba PCs, they did pay for a full page ad in yesterday's uh, Winnipeg Free Press. It, uh, we have it here for people to look at. It highlights uh, Wapkanu's uh, past criminal charges and other candidates who the PCs say are wild cards if Manitobans vote for them. Why that ad now? Is it a sign of desperation or an indication of where the party might still build support? Yeah, the, the word desperation has been bandied about a fair bit in the last couple of days. Um, I think really the Tory strategy throughout this campaign has been about just shoring up and solidifying and getting out their core vote, which I think, you know, they're hoping is just enough to put them over, you know, over the edge uh, and into just a bare majority territory. I That's not what the polls seem to say is is being very successful. Um, and I think this last, the kind of this last week of the campaign, those negative ads that are, and, and even billboards uh, in, in the city about the landfill issue and searching the landfill um, have kind of rubbed perhaps swing voters and uh, the, the few undecideds uh, that are out there perhaps the wrong way. But it is about really galvanizing that core vote um, yeah. that they hope is going to be just enough. Well, you mentioned, uh, sadly, the, the landfill situation, and I want to put up here another ad for people at home because there was another advertisement that the party ran last weekend. It really doubled down on the PC's decision to deny paying for the search of two Indigenous women whose uh, bodies may have been dumped at the Prairie Green landfill. How has that issue played out in this campaign? Has it been to the benefit of the Manitoba PCs? The, the, the polling shows that Manitobans are somewhat split on this issue, and we have nuanced views. You know, it is an expensive proposition. There's not a, a, a massive um, sort of chance that a search of the landfill will be successful. And so there's a chunk of voters who think that that's just maybe not going to be a, a, a priority when it comes to missing and murdered women. On the flip side, there's very vocal um, and uh, very personal views that we, we have to search the landfill. It's a must do. But the Tories have really sort of staked this last week of the campaign, particularly on this kind of this this wedge issue, unfortunately. Um, and it is very much a values issue. It's a it's sort of a, a bit of a, a moral one. Um, but they, I think, they do believe that there is a tranche of voters who really kind of draw the line at the landfill search for for better or worse now we, we know that historically that in particular in the winnipeg area if liberals do well uh, the, the conservatives can come up in the middle and essentially solidify a, a government are the liberals uh something the the ndp needs to watch out for this time around I, you know i think that almost the it's almost the reverse that's true i think the liberals really are at risk of getting uh, not if not wiped out, but like really badly damaged in this upcoming uh, vote. Um, the NDP has just been absolutely single-minded about uh, going after that liberal vote as like the five, ten percent that they need uh, in each uh, in each of those really battleground ridings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, quickly running out of time, but, you know, as you're talking here, it seems that very much the ground game that the parties run on Election Day to get the vote out is what we need to be watching out for come Tuesday. Totally. I mean, the ground game is always kind of the unsung important thing of a campaign. But in this one, uh, it's it's hugely important. Like we're starting to pay attention to like who's got the really great campaign managers, who's got a really veteran core of door knockers who are going to pull that vote this i think there is kind of maybe four or five ridings where this could come down to a few hundred you know 400 500 votes 
Um, so it is really about that ground game in the last few days here. Well, uh, we will be in uh, Winnipeg for Election Day, and I know Mary Agnes, you and I will be speaking on that day, so I look forward to that. But until then, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. And that is our program for this Thursday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC and Primetime Politics, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow. Up next is Esther Bejan avec L'Essentiel.